Hey everyone, welcome to Faithful Doubt. My name is Jordan. We're wrapping up our series today with our final episode on the old becomes new. So let's go ahead and get started. Now, uh, if you've been following with us the last couple episodes, then you'll remember that this series is all about the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they come together and how they actually tell this larger story that we can uh, read and, and help us to understand who God is and why he has created all of creation. And so last week, our question was, why are there so many laws in the Old Testament? And so today, we're, to wrap up the series, our question is this, why is there an Old Testament? Why is there a New Testament? Why do we have two different testaments? And to a lot of uh, non-Christians, it probably sounds confusing. Um, and I know that there is a lot of uh, people who, they, they don't understand why Christians seemingly pick and choose laws to follow or uphold. And I, you know, as a Christian myself, it does frustrate me when we do pick and choose certain things. But Primarily what people are talking about when they say Christians pick and choose the laws to follow, I think a lot of times what they're what they're thinking of or what they've heard is the laws in the Old Testament, such as eating uh, only certain animals, like clean versus unclean animals, or wearing certain garments, or you know, not cutting your hair. These these ancient laws that were given to a specific group of people in a specific time. And last week I kind of covered um well, actually, all I did was cover why there is a difference between ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law in the Old Testament. And so today, I'm going to kind of just go walk us through the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament and how there is this overarching story going on when you read the entirety of Scripture. And so to really start with that, you, again, and if you've watched our previous episodes, I've probably gone over this a lot, but we have to start with the creation account in Genesis and why God creates everything in the first place. And so if you'll remember my analogy that I've used before, the the, the idea here is that when in, in the beginning, when God creates everything, he says, let us create man in our own image. And who, we always ask the question, who is the us that God is talking to? Because if God is the only person or being that exists before creation, well, then who else is he talking to? Is it angels? We don't think so. We, we think, uh, and there's good evidence to, to show from the Bible, that God is actually talking to the Holy Spirit and to the Son, Jesus Christ. And so God the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit are existing in this eternal relationship that's just been it's always been and it always will be there is no beginning to God there is no end to God so it just is eternal and has always been and it's infinite and so in this eternal loving relationship where they can be in a community with one another they want to expand that circle to their creation to to God's creation to us and so now we have been interjected into that circle in the form of Adam and Eve. And the only the only requirement to be in that circle is to not eat of a certain tree in the garden. And of course, Adam and Eve decide willingly. Now they were tempted, which is not a sin, but they willingly went against the will of God, which, which makes it a sin. And so when they eat from the tree, 
that they were commanded not to, breaking the one rule, the one commandment that God gave them. They have now sinned and evil has entered into the world. And because God is so good and so pure, evil and sin cannot be, it just cannot exist in his presence. It, it won't be allowed. God's character does not allow it to exist in his presence. So because of that, instead of just annihilating his creation that he saw was so good and that he loved so much, instead of just destroying it, he separates himself. He separates us by casting out Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And so from there, we get the story of the Old Testament, which the Old Testament is a story of a certain group of people that really starts with Abraham. But between Adam and Abraham, you have obviously the story of Noah, right? And so Noah is the ancestor of Abraham and Abraham who all Jewish people regard as Father Abraham, one of the greatest, if not the greatest person in their history. That's really where we get the beginning of the Old Testament, the, the story of God's chosen people, the promise that is given to Abraham through his descendants is that one day there will be salvation and the people will be saved and redeemed and restored with God. And so the Old Testament is this story of, of all the descendants of Abraham, and we would call them the nation of Israel or uh, Israelites uh, or God's chosen people. And the Old Testament is, is, a, is a story of who God is and a story of uh, his relationship with his people. But, more, but also, very importantly, it's a story about our condition as humans. We are fallen. We are broken because of Adam and Eve's sin uh, that they committed. Now there is just uh, original sin throughout all of creation. And all of creation has been corrupted by this sin. And so now death and sickness and all these horrible things have entered into the world. We no longer are immortal and can live. We can't even exist in the presence of God anymore. And so... Uh, in order for God to, uh, in order for us to enter into the presence of God, God provides a way for us to actually worship Him, how we should worship Him. And this is where we get all the ceremonial laws. And so you have uh, all these laws about what you can eat and what you can't eat and what you can touch and what you can't touch and what you have to wear and what you can't wear, just so that when you enter into the temple, and enter into God's presence, you just, you won't be destroyed because you're, you're unclean. So God provides these rituals so that people can clean themselves in order to be in his presence, but it's temporary. It's not eternal. And so those, those things are ceremonial law. And then if you, if you were to break sin, God, or if, excuse me, if you were to sin and, and commit, uh, acts uh, against God's will that he commanded people not to. Uh, and that's where we get the moral law, right? We get the moral law from Moses, the Ten Commandments, uh, the, the things that God commands us on how we should live. When we break those commandments, the moral law, God provides ways for, our, for his people to punish those who break the law. And that's where we get civil law. So at the time... God's people is a nation. It's just a nation state. So you have the civil law of God infused 
into this nation state. And so it's one thing. And so if someone were to commit adultery, this is where we get things like executing people who commit horrible uh, sins or not take out the word horrible there. People who commit sin, there are consequences. And some of those consequences are execution or banishing people or whatever that looks like. And so that's civil law. Okay, so throughout the Old Testament, we see time and time again the condition of humans, and that is uh, we, we have a, a hell-bent will. We, without God, we continue to choose things that are not of God, things that are of the flesh, things that are sinful, and uh, sometimes uh, uh, anything that's sinful is, by definition, evil. Um, now, Quick clarification, uh, on earth, humans, we have a, we have, we don't view all sin as evil, right? There are certain sins that we would say are worse than others, such as we probably think murder is worse than lying to someone. But in, in God's standard, in God's eyes, sin is all, is sin. All sin is sin. So it's, it's evil no matter what it is because it can't exist in his presence. He won't allow it. His character will not allow it. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be loving. He wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be pure. So if he allows it to exist in his presence, then he's not God. So he doesn't allow it to exist. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see the story over and over again of God's chosen people being miraculously led and saved and cared for and provided for and given uh, an entire land to be in, protected from other nations, and they continue to rebel against God and not follow his will. Perfect example is when Moses leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery. You know, you would think after witnessing the most powerful empire on earth at the time, being uh, submitted, uh, being in submission to God on its knees because of these uh signs of destruction that were brought upon Egypt until Pharaoh would let his people, uh, let God's people go. You think if you were an Israelite, a, a, a people, uh, a person within the people of God, and you saw that with your own eyes, that as soon as you're freed from captivity, that the first thing you would want to do is, is worship God. But instead, the first thing they do is they create an altar to a false God. And then Moses brings down the Ten Commandments and out of anger because God's people are incorrectly uh, worshiping the, the wrong God. He, he throws the commandments, uh, the tablets at the false uh, idol and breaks them out of anger and frustration. And God's covenant with his people, which is there is a promise that one day a Messiah will come from these people and save not just Israel, but will save the world. And not from an earthly kingdom, but from a kingdom of hell, from a kingdom of death and evil. And we will be resurrected and restored to the perfect uh, way, perfect creation, right? We will live in eternity in the perfect creation that God originally designed for us. And so over and over and over, the people of Israel, the people of God, continue to go against God's will, continue to break his commandments, to continue to break the covenant. And this is why 
Marriage is such a great analogy for our relationship with God. And this is why marriage is called a covenant, not a contract. Because in a covenant, it doesn't matter what the other party does or doesn't do. If they break their, their vows, I still hold to my vows because I have entered into a covenant, not a contract. I don't immediately leave the, the relationship because I feel wronged or something has been done that I don't like. So in this covenant with God, this, this old covenant, the Old Testament, God never leaves his people. He never stops loving his people, and he never breaks his promise. Even though his people over and over through thousands of years of history break the covenant over and over again. And that is... We, we, ha we have the stories of the prophets. The Old Testament tells of the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament tells of the trials that God's people go through. But it, it, it shows us how we can worship God. The Old Testament, the ceremonial laws give us a way on how we can worship God. And now you get to the New Testament. So you have this Old Testament. And I want you to imagine... The Old Testament and the New Testament, there is this arc, what we would call a meta-narrative, an overarching story throughout the entire Bible. Yes, you can enter into, the, into individual stories within Scripture and read those stories by themselves and understand them. But if you don't understand the overarching meta-narrative, the overarching story that's going on throughout the entirety of Scripture, it's not going to make a lot of sense. And so when the Old Testament ends, we get to the New Testament. We get to, to this new covenant that enters in through a man named Jesus. And so the New Testament is no longer just a story of a people. It's a story of a man. It's the story of God coming down to earth to become just like us, to become flesh. And, and, and this New Testament tells us more about who God is. And it's it's no and, and and through Jesus, the way the way in which we worship, how we worship is changed. And that is this, that circle that God created where he had an eternal relationship of love and community with the Spirit and the Son, and He He brings us along inside that relationship, it was broken. And in order to restore that, there's a cost. You know, he can't just allow evil and sin to go unpunished because of his character. He can't just snap his finger. I mean, he does he have the ability to just snap his fingers? Of course. But he wouldn't because that's not his character. And so there's this cost. Something, someone must be punished for the evil and sin in the world. And because of that... He chooses to give up his only son for us. And so on the cross, Jesus bears the entire sin of the world, past, present, and future for everyone and anyone. And he takes the punishment for all of that on himself. And it's not just a physical punishment that Jesus endures on the cross. It is a spiritual punishment where he is now separated from the Father just think about that. Jesus exists in this eternal relationship from 
before time and will until the end of time and beyond that. It's infinite. His relationship is infinite. And in a moment, he has now been cut off from that relationship. Imagine being cut off from your own parents, your own loved ones, that you've been in a relationship for your own life and through your own life. And some of you do know what that feels like, but imagine that times infinity. And that's how it felt for Jesus. He no longer has this relationship with God. And on the cross, he experiences the cosmic weight of hell and punishment and sin. That is not his. He never sinned. It's our sin. And through that punishment, the relationship with God, we now have someone who stands in between us, in between our punishment that we rightfully deserve. And he's our mediator. And we are justified by his blood, by his resurrection. Death has been defeated. And in and faith through Christ, we can now worship God without all the ceremonial laws. We no longer have to watch what we uh, eat or touch or wear in order to enter the presence of God because Jesus's blood was sufficient to clean us. And so when people find inconsistencies in Christians because of what they choose to follow and not follow, that's really not the case. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and there's only three options here. Either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And if he's Lord, then the way you interpret his sacrifice on the cross for us, his resurrection from the grave, is this. It was sufficient to clean us of all of our sin, past, present, and future, so that now we can enter into a into the presence of God and we can worship him. So the Old Testament was how we worship God. The New Testament is why we worship God. The Old Testament gave us a practice and ritual to worship God. And the New Testament gives us a person, a relationship on how to worship God. And so throughout the New Testament, we see the, the early church we see Paul writing to other churches and Jesus, what he has done is he has taken it, taken the story of the people and expanded it to the story of all creation. And the gospel is no longer bound to the nation of Israel. It is now broken out to the world so that everyone can enter into this relationship with God and know who he is. And because of that, there's no need for the civil law because there is no nation state of God. God's people are cast throughout the world among many nations. And so now the moral law still exists, still applies. And so why do we worship God? Well, when you understand just how broken you are as a person, how not perfect I am as a person, how little I measure up to the standard of God and how just uh, horrible and unfathomable death and, and these horrible things that we experience in the world are, you, I, we are in need of, of someone to step in and save us, to find us, to reach us. And that man was Jesus. That person was Jesus. It was God. And so 
I, if I if you if you understand that, and I, and I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it won't be difficult because a lot of people have experienced horrible things in life, and your heart has been just hardened and turned against God because you you can't understand why God will allow these things to happen to you. And we all go through that to some extent. And when you understand that Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross, that he experienced the ultimate suffering so that we never do, we never have to, that transforms your life. And God enters into your life in such a powerful way that it rearranges the very landscape of your heart. And so now everything in your life is no longer centered on me. I am no longer the God of my life. Now Jesus is the God of my life. He is the one true God in my entire existence. My entire life is wrapped up in him. And I'm trying to live in a way that shows that I love him, that I, that I show gratitude for the very sacrifice and love that he showed for me. And so now I understand why we worship God. And so one day, the, the story's not over yet, right? Because this world is still broken and it, sin has been defeated, death has been defeated, but evil and sin still exist. And so one day, Jesus will return and will restore everything to the way it was supposed to be. And evil will be defeated once and for all. And there will be no more death, no more tears, no more sickness, no more sadness. And we will just live in the eternal presence of God. But only if you choose to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and encounter him as your Lord. And so this is the overarching story of the entire Bible. And this is why there are certain parts of the Old Testament that are still relevant, yet don't apply to us today. There are certain laws in there that were for a group of people in a specific time before Jesus entered into their time. And those laws no longer apply, but they're still relevant. The spirit, the principle behind them are still relevant. And so this is how the old becomes new. And not only does the Old Testament become the New Testament, but now we as human beings and creations of God go from this old state of death and decay into a new state of life and joy and love through the relationship we have with Jesus and the sacrifice and resurrection that he made. This is the entire story of scripture. This is the gospel. This is the great story of God and creation. And what we have to remember is it's not about us. It's all about him. And so I hope this has helped you illuminated in some way, just how Christians look at scripture uh, in its entirety and why certain things might seem inconsistent to you on the outside if you're a non-Christian. I hope if you are a Christian watching this, this has illuminated something that you're struggling with to understand. And again, I'm not saying I understand 100% the entire Bible, obviously. I, I don't have all the answers. But I know this. I know the one who does have all the answers, and I love him very much. 
and I continue to fail and I will continue to fail each and every day. But his sacrifice was sufficient. His blood was sufficient and his love was sufficient and his resurrection was sufficient to justify me, to sanctify me and eventually glorify God and the perfect restoration that is to come. So this has been Faithful Doubt. Uh, let's let's keep the engagement going. This is the end of the series uh, for The Old Becomes New. Looking for, I'm really looking forward to the next series. I have some exciting news coming up on what we're gonna be doing. There might be some changes to the format in these videos, uh, but we are gonna take a little break uh, with the videos. So if you feel like I haven't posted a video in a while, I promise they'll be coming, uh, but let's, let's keep, engaging with one another. Let's keep loving one another and I'll see you guys next time.